be looking in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, Matthew chapter 1. My great-great-grandfather, Ernest Hartwig, immigrated from Germany in late 1800s. From best we can tell, he came to New York and probably Ellis Island and heard about some land grants that were being offered in Ontario, Canada. And so received one of those and started to farm that. Ended up being pretty poor ground. My uncle owns that today. He came across with about eight or nine children, had a couple more once he was here. Uh, and uh, so his, his son would be Fred, my grandfather Milburn, my grandfather, my dad, Alfred, uh, immigrated to the U.S., to New York, and I immigrated from New York to Iowa. <laughs> That's about as far back as I know on my dad's side of the family, and unless you've probably done a lot of research or there's some book written about your family, probably few of us know much further back than that. So when you read about a genealogy that goes back through centuries, it's pretty profound. And that was the birth of Jesus Christ. It goes back, uh, he is told us that, that he is from Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So his line is faced, traced through David to Abraham. You could read in Luke where it's traced all the way back to Adam there. And the point of this is showing that he is human, that he is, as the descendant of this, in Matthew 1, he has the right to be the king. Uh, jo- Joseph was of the line of David. The, right, the kings came from David's line of the tribe of Judah. But look in verse 1. It says the book or description of the genealogy, so the birth how he came about his origin of Jesus Christ. So he's trying to tell us how Jesus Christ came. How did he come into this world? And we'll we'll see, we know from bigger context that God sent Jesus into this world. But we're going to see in this chapter how some of the things that God uh, came about, how he went about this. How did God send Jesus into this world? He sent his own son into this world. Um, we, we know that from the teaching of Scripture. We'll see some of that here in this passage as well, that the, Jesus is his own son. But how is he going to bring it about? Uh, he promised to send the deliverer, the Savior, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. But how did he bring that about? Verse 1 through 17 is this genealogy, a bunch of names there that seem distant, I mentioned there it's to show that he is from the line of David, the right to reign as king. There are some women included there, uh, outsiders as it were, um, surprising there. I think it's a testimony of God's grace in their lives. And you can think more about that. But I want to jump down to verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. If you trace down there, there would be like, like verse 11, Josiah begat Jeconiah, and all these begats, begats, begats. But there's a break in the pattern in verse 16. Jacob begot Joseph, so that's his Jacob and father Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born 
Jesus who's called Christ. It doesn't say that Joseph begot Jesus. There's a difference there and a description there. And that is because of how this is going to be brought about is that God is going to send his son to be born of the Virgin Mary. To be born of the Virgin Mary. In verse 18, it says, Now the birth, and that's actually the same word from verse 1. So the genealogy, the birth, the origin of Jesus in verse 1. He's picking up now and further describing this in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So we started out by hearing about a betrothed couple. Probably uh, that's not how you think about things. When I got betrothed to my uh, girlfriend, it's not how we use that word, but it's, it's a fitting reminder because uh, it's different than our terminology engaged. Engaged, it's formal, but people break that off and things like that. Betrothal in that day was a formal, uh, legal even, arrangement where a man and a woman would enter into this uh, and they would be seen as legally married, but they would not live together, often for about a year beforehand, while they prepared for marriage. And sometimes they didn't even see each other a whole lot during that time, testing that commitment to one another. And this is what they, Mary and Joseph were betrothed. They were, in a sense, legally married, and yet Mary, and they were not living together, and yet Mary was found with child. In the Gospel of Luke, we, tells, we see that an angel appeared to Mary and tells her that she's going to have a baby and this baby is going to be because of the Holy Spirit. I'll read these verses, Luke 1, 31 through 35. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth his son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I don't know a man? Never slept with a man before. How can this be? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And the angel tells, It's because of God the Holy Spirit that you're going to be with child. And so she knows this. Joseph doesn't know this. How did this come and be? He knows that he didn't sleep with Mary. How was she with child? Was she unfaithful to him? He doesn't know this at this point. And so what he determines to do from verse 19, being a just man, that is a righteous man. He was a God-fearing, godly man. He wanted to do things right. And he had the right to make her a public example, to put her away publicly, even perhaps even to call for her death, but rather what he wanted to do to, to put her away, that is to divorce her secretly. Remember, betrothal was a legal uh, arrangement. They, they were seen as being married. So he says, I'm going to put her away quietly. I'm going to do what is right, but as compassionately as possible. That's what he was trying to do until the angel comes, gives him this message. 
verse 20, this dream. Uh, There an angel of the Lord uh, appears to him in the dream, saying, Joseph, verse 20, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. And that baby, it's in her womb, it's of the Holy Spirit, this miracle that God has brought about. She hasn't been unfaithful. She hasn't done anything that are wrong. You are to take this child and to embrace him as your own. The son is, uh, we'll see in just a moment, it's, it's God's son, the savior there. But God is letting both Mary and Joseph know that this baby is, to, is uh, in Mary because of the, the virgin, uh, because of the Holy Spirit bringing this about. God, the Holy Spirit, miraculously caused Mary to be pregnant, even though she was a virgin. How was God going to send his son into the world? Born of the Virgin Mary. The virgin birth was God's plan for uniting full deity with full humanity in one person, Jesus Christ. This was God's plan for sending his son into the world to become a man to be born of a woman, to be born of the Virgin Mary. And so she was, he was the son, that is man, a human, but also God, fully man and fully God. And he did so at the right time. As Galatians chapter four, verse four says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those or under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. How is God going to fulfill his plan in sending his son to earth? First of all, born of a virgin. And there's, there's things that about this that we, we don't understand, we can't humanly comprehend. Is, and God is doing something that's never been done before. That's why we call it a miracle. God using his power to do something really special in sending his son to earth. Second, we see that he sent his son as our savior. That is what the angel tells to Joseph in the dream there, verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who is this baby who's going to be born? It's the son is going to be the savior. That is what the name Jesus means, that's the God, God will save or Savior. And so that's why this son is going to be born, to be the Savior. We need to ask, what are we going to, what is he going to save? How is he going to save? But we also need to see the answer that's there in the text itself in verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. What is the salvation he's going to offer? It's not going to be saving something that he thinks is good for later. That's not what he's talking about. He's providing salvation or deliverance from what? From sins against God. The scripture teaches that all of us have sinned against God. That we've broken his perfect standard of righteousness. That God has said this is what's right and wrong. We say, I don't want to do that. And so we've all sinned against God. None of us are guilt uh, can be said. I'm innocent of that. We're all guilty before God. And we all deserve the payment for our sin, that is death. 
We deserve to be separated from him forever in a place called hell. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we rightly deserve because of our sin, to be separated from him. But yet, God sent his son Jesus to this earth, and he came as a man, lived a sinless life, and died in our place as our substitute. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 says, Who gave himself for our sins, He might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus Christ came. He died for our sins in our place as our substitute. And he could die in our place because he was sinless. And this is where the teaching of the virgin birth is so important. Is that in this way Jesus was unlike any other human. And that he was born without a sinful nature which was normally passed down from his parents. He was born without ever doing anything wrong. And because he was sinless and was he by nature and sinless in his actions, he never had done anything wrong so he could be our substitute. He could be the one who would take the place of our guilt, of our punishment there upon the cross. He had to be sinless in order to be our substitute. Through God bringing his birth about by the virgin birth of Mary, he saw that this was accomplished. In 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered for once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Oh, what grace, what mercy, what love God showed to us in sending his own son, the sinless one, the innocent one, to die in our place so that we could come to God. Jesus rose from the dead after three days, ascended up into heaven. He is the Savior. But that does not mean that everyone benefits from that salvation. As 1 Timothy 4, verse 10 says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all, especially those who believe. Jesus came to be the Savior, to offer salvation to all. But only those who respond to the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, benefit from that salvation. Salvation can be there. Someone can know about Jesus, hear about him. I like to learn about Jesus, but if they have not placed their faith and trust in Christ alone as their Savior, they will have to pay the penalty for their sin because they have not trusted in the substitute, Jesus, the Son of God who died for them and rose again. And so I want to pause and ask you, have you responded to the gospel? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior? You need to respond in order to be saved. He is the Savior, but is he your Savior? Because you've responded in faith to him. Remember when the angel came to the shepherds 
In Luke 2, he says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. No wonder this message brings joy. No wonder we want to sing his praise. No wonder we want to celebrate. The Savior was born. God sent his son as the Savior. God sent his son as Emmanuel. <clears throat> he sent his son in fulfillment of Scripture. In verse 22, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, this is from the prophet Isaiah, some six, seven hundred years earlier, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Here he says this birth, the birth of Jesus is going to fulfill prophecy that was spoken long ago, that this virgin would bear a a child and this son would be God with us, called Emmanuel. Jesus fulfills this prophecy God was coming to dwell among his people in human flesh, the fully God, fully man. Uh, and, and so how is God going to fulfill his plan? He's going to send his own son to be the savior. Emmanuel may be spelled with an I or an E, but it means God with us. It's more of a title than a name per, per se, Um, But this Savior, Jesus, is going to be God with humanity. God coming and dwelling on this earth. When Jesus lived here on this earth, people didn't wonder, really, if he was a man. They saw him eat. They saw him sleep. They saw him learn and grow. But yet, what many people didn't believe, that Jesus was more than just a man. They didn't believe that he was God. But that's what Jesus was trying to communicate to them through his teaching, through the miracles that he did, that I'm more than just a man, that I am God in the flesh. I am God with you. And here's the marvel of God's plan. It's not surprising that God would send the Savior. He's good on keeping his promises. Surprising that he would send his own son to be the savior. His own son to dwell among us, to take the punishment that we deserved to provide salvation for us. In 1861, there was a Soldier, the Union, William Scott, who was found asleep on his post on guard duty. In his defense, he had been up the night before and the night before as well. But as was the case of the rules of law, he was sentenced to death for this. The other regiment was not very pleased about this, liked him. And so they appealed and they appealed, and this appeal went all the way to Abraham Lincoln. And he heard about this, and he agreed to pardon Scott. 
And so as it goes, the history, William Scott was there before the firing squad, about ready to be put to death. And the sentence was read, and then the pardon was read. Part of that goes, that as the President of the United States has expressed a wish that as this is the first condemnation of, to death in this army for this crime, mercy may be extended to the criminal. And here that man at the, the very moment that I'm going to die was pardoned, received the mercy, yes, from the commander, but from the commander-in-chief as well. To a greater extent, that's what God did, knowing the judgment that we deserve, came to offer the pardon himself, God with us. Dying in the place of guilty sinners, taking the punishment that we deserve, God leaving heaven to come and dwell among us here on this earth, and this book of Matthew really begins with Emmanuel, God with us, and it ends with Emmanuel, God with us. As Jesus is about to ascend up into heaven, he's giving his promises to his disciples, and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is he promising? His presence, God with us. And so for believers in Christ, we never can escape God's presence. But this is a challenge, but also an encouragement that he continues to dwell with us. God the Spirit dwells inside of us. Jesus is with us. God never leaves his children alone. And this is what God is bringing about by sending his son as Emmanuel. And then fourth, God sent his son to Mary and Joseph who would believe and obey him. Remember what Joseph was planning to do before the dream? To divorce Mary. I can't proceed with this marriage agreement. But what did he do after the message from the angel? Verse 24, then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and she called, he called his name Jesus. Joseph listened to what the angel said. He believed this message. He believed that this baby was of the, the, the Holy Spirit, that she had not been unfaithful. And so he took Mary as his wife, and he did not uh, sleep with her until after Jesus was born. He called the baby named Jesus, just as the angel had said, this was a man who believed what God said and obeyed that. We see this in Luke as well, with particularly regarding Mary. She believed this message that the angel gave to her, and she obeyed. This would be at somewhat of a cost. 
People would talk, would whisper. I mean, even when Jesus was a man, people made this accusation about him that he was an illegitimate child. Joseph had to look past that all. This is what God has said. I know that she was not unfaithful. This was Jesus, conceived of the, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take Jesus as my own child and raise him as such. So much so that Jesus is the legal heir of of Joseph, the right to reign as king that needed to take place. And even though Joseph was not, humanly speaking, his father, he raised him as his own son. He taught him. He walked with him through so many things in life. And Joseph and Mary... And particularly Mary can be given too much priority, especially in some church traditions. Certainly we know Mary didn't remain a virgin, but went on to have other children, as Mark chapter 6, verse 3 tells us about these. And so we can give them too much priority and emphasis. But we should not neglect the biblical teaching that gives that these were the young couple that God chose to give his son. Somewhat poor, but they were righteous. They were trying to please God. And they were given the immense privilege and responsibility to raise their Savior. They were sinners needing a Savior. And this one who was in their home, born of Mary, would one day die on the cross for their sins. They believed this message. They trusted that, and they trusted God's plan for their lives. Jesus, born in the humble circumstances of a stable, visited by shepherds, Magi presenting their wonderful gifts. All of this, somewhat confusing, you can imagine, to them. But they trusted God and his plan. And they said, this is what it looks like for us to walk in the path of obedience. To not fight against God and what he's doing. He's given us this privilege, this responsibility to raise Jesus. I think that calls us to at least consider this thought. What does it look like for us to walk in the path of obedience to Jesus? Having trusted in him, what does it look like for us to obey him? Certainly, it's not going to be to raise the Son of God as a one-time event. But yet, there's ways that he calls us to walk in obedience. He wants us to trust and obey him. What an amazing plan. God sent his Son into the world. Maybe ponder and think about this significance. As God is fulfilling his plan of redemption, 
and sending Jesus to this world.